know what that means? Everything. Anglo-thieves. Gettle's gone. Oh my god, you people have just failed me. Failed me utterly. Congratulations, Scotland. We have just gone full brigadier. That just explains so much of my childhood to me. Research purposes. It's super important. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 38 of Anglophies, where we're talking about mysteries. Because it's a mystery. <laughs> See what I did there? I'm hilarious. Everything I say is delightful. I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. And I'm Kaylee. And, um... Let's get to it. Long-time listeners will note that isn't this the episode where you usually talk about TV? The fact that we're not talking about it should tell you everything you need to know about this this year's fall TV season. Yeah, I gave Screen Queens three minutes of my time before there were multiple white mammy jokes. And I went, nope, Ryan Murphy, you're still Ryan Murphy. <laughs> Done. Yeah, I, I've struggled just reading recaps of both Screen Queens and American Horror Story Hotel. It's it's not good. I, I He really seems to struggle with the concept that pretty white women making horrifically racist jokes is not comedy. Mm. Yeah, he does not seem to realize that this is the stuff that sank Glee. Yeah, it's too bad that Glee only it. lasted one season. Oh, just terrible tragedy. Mm. Just remember, people, we should all be thankful that we do not live in the timeline where Hamilton and Glee exist at the same time. Right? Oh, dear God. Right? You know, my Twitter feed has been so full of Hamilton and Tumblr dashboard and really my internet. Uh huh. It's like all Hamilton all the time. And I haven't seen uh-huh. it because I'm not in the States. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I haven't seen it either, States. but I have listened to it. <laughs> okay, I ha- I am in the states and I haven't seen it. The cheap tickets are 177 before fees, and that doesn't include things like travel and lodging in New York. And I just committed a bunch of money to go to Sweden next summer. Uh, so road trip. So. Yes, I will ask for Hamilton cr- tickets for Christmas. I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, they're booking through until Christmas of next year. Keep in mind that in Broadway, 75% of shows don't even break even. And yeah. mostly, a large portion of them don't even last longer than a year. This this thing could be a lifer, which is yeah. almost an impossibility in Broadway now. I love the fact that the, t- the hot topic of pop culture right now is a hip-hop Broadway musical about Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> and I think the smartest thing that that show did was was put their cast recording on Spotify and NPR. Yeah. Because I know so many people on this side of the ocean that are like, hey, have you heard of this Hamilton thing? It's amazing. Mm-hmm. They're reaching an audience that never usually sees Broadway. Yeah. And I think they're also doing that because they've been really fascinating, you know, they've made really fascinating casting choices, which is tell the story of the history of the America of yesterday with the America of today, I think, was how Lin-Manuel Miranda described it. Yeah. 
He's yeah. basically blown the theory of but historical accuracy out the water. Yeah, oh, and, and he said that he would totally be okay with women playing dude parts. Oh, yes, please. Yeah. yeah. So go listen to the Hamilton recording if you haven't. Even if no. you don't like musicals or you don't like American history or any of that, just listen to it. Right. And, like, the the most fascinating thing about it to me is, like, first act is a revolutionary war. Let's kill the British. Um, let's free ourselves from from the yoke of Crazy King George, who sings this beautiful British pop invasion versions of, like, here's to my my lover who is <laughs> leaving me because she thinks I'm abusive or whatever. I thought we had an arrangement. And the second act is things like, is he going to get his debt consolidation plan through? I'm on the edge of my fucking seat. The first review I saw of it was a little bit... It, it was all about the... I want to say the sisters. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that period of American history very well. So I don't know how much of it was kind of for the show and how much of it was taken from history. So it, But the review really made it sound like it was more about the love story, I guess. Than, I mean, uh, it's... No. I mean, it's, it's given equal parts because... It talks about the the importance of women in American history, even though the the place is not their place in history is not like building a country. It it is the domestic stuff, but that's still important. Mm-hmm. And the relationship Hamilton had with his sister in law Angelica is fascinating. Okay, what? What is the deal there? Did he court one sister, marry another? Is that the way it worked? When, in in reality, Angelica was already married when she met him. Mm-hmm. But their letters to each other are not exactly uh, sibling-like. Right. And... Well then. <laughs> so whether or not they had... A sort of consummated relationship. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't think anyone does. But I mean, he did sort of create the first sex scandal of American history by writing it all down and going, "Yep, this dude's trying to blackmail me. I fucked his wife publicly." <laughs> he said that. That didn't go over too well. <laughs> We we were going to talk about mysteries. We were going to talk about mysteries. But Hamilton does this to people. <laughs> but I think a lot of our listeners will forgive us this particular tangent. Yeah. Well, I mean, 38 episodes in, they should be used to our tangents by now. <laughs> mm. Or I've said it before, and I will say it again. Lin-Manuel Miranda should have written the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find the movie. Mm. I'm still mad over that movie, by the way. For a number of non-Eddie Redmayne reasons. <laughs> but also for Eddie Redmayne reasons. But also for Eddie Redmayne. Yeah. My, my hatreds are perfectly rational, thank you. My nemesis list perfectly. I didn't say anything. <laughs> Actually, he's not even at the top anymore. I mean, listening to Jared Leto's method talk about playing the Joker put him right back at number one. I feel like we should have a website. Who is Kaylee's nemesis this week? <laughs> 
Well, J- well, James Franco is fighting really hard to get back to number one with that movie he's made of Sound and Fury. <laughs> Holy crap, have you seen the trailer for that? No. no. That trailer looks like, you know the fake trailers they played in Tropic Thunder? <laughs> I hate to use the phrase, he missed a point, because I feel like it's a really snobby and elitist thing to say, and there's very different variations and, you know interpretations of text that you can have and they're all perfectly legitimate but holy crap james franco missed the point of faulkner really hard did he miss it as hard as baz Luhrmann missed the point of great gatsby he at least had to put like nice costumes in there you know gatsby misses the point but it's a pretty point missed you know there there, there are some redeeming points to that movie i like oh i will show you guys half of it and i was so bored i had to turn it off you weren't distracted by the sparkles no i kind of just bored. <laughs> so you didn't play the old sport drinking game? No. That might have That's been my mistake. This is mostly tangent. Harry Potter doesn't really have anything to do with this, but J.K. Rowling does a little because um, I have read all of her Cormorant Strike series, and so we'll be talking about that in the book section of this episode. The other section being the TV section. Yes, Miss Mur- Fisher's Murder Mysteries is going to be the centerpiece of the episode, listeners, we promise. I don't know about that. I, I have a lot of Hinterland feelings. We we thought about doing this a little bit chronologically because TV murder mysteries do have, you know, kind of a long and storied history. I guess you could say we touched a little bit on it when we did our Sherlock episode. So we're not, we, I would say we're not going to rehash any of that. I, I, both Sherlock and Elementary have had one more season since then. I don't think we changed our feelings on either one, really. Um, yeah. not, not to any significant amounts. So TV TV mysteries. Uh, the big ones, I guess, are murder shoot. Oh, well, we did want to start. Let's start with the difference between a murder mystery and a procedural. Because Raiden brought that up when we were uh, talking about the structure for the episode. And it's a little easy to blur the line. For example, um, Let's take Murder, She Wrote and Magnum P.I. because they were on the air at the same time. They even had the crossover episode. So they were set, you could say they set in the same universe and maybe had some similarity in tone. Mm-hmm. And I would call Murder, She Wrote cozy mysteries. Yeah. But Magnum P.I. is probably more of a procedural. Although I'd say Magnum P.I. can kind of straddle the line. Mm-hmm. And partially because if it's, if it's law enforcement, it's almost 100% procedural. Yeah. Almost always. If it's on CBS, it's probably procedural. Right. That's why Hawaii Five-0, where the original one was always, I think, was also of that era of shows, mm-hmm. would definitely be a procedural. Cozy Mystery is, I think, almost 100% always about the amateur sleuth. Yeah. Which makes it a mystery. And, I mean, it's not, it's not a hard and fast distinction that... If there are, if there is legitimate law enforcement involved, it's procedural, because certainly with a lot of British detective shows, a lot of them, it seems like every British actor I know has at least one or two DCI character in their resume somewhere. Including Helen Mirren. Yeah, it's kind of our equivalent of like putting in the Law and Order time. Yeah, only it's not all Law and Order, and you get a lot more varied tones and stories, which I rather like because I'm so tapped out on Law and Order for a lifetime. There's like a million seasons of various different flavors. 
it's a good point because I watch uh, both Lewis and Midsummer Murders, and I consider those mysteries and not procedurals. Mm-hmm. Even though they're they are about cops doing right. their Right, and I'm not too sure exactly how to phrase the distinction, but mysteries tend to focus more on the clues and the case, and there's a lot less running around with guns. Especially in UK shows. Especially in UK shows, but also, I think, in US shows. Yeah, there were a couple of times while watching Hinterland that I was like, why don't you have your... Oh, right. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Why are you running in there without your... Oh, right. Never mind. (laughs) There's definitely... um, There's definitely, like, a... I think the the probably appropriate term would be a cozy element. Mm -hmm. Like, a lot of mysteries where it's... She's, you know, got an actual job or, you know, another way she he or she is. I say she because a lot of this is very female-centered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The they have earned money and this is kind of like a hobby almost, like an amateur sleuth. There is a whole genre of that like it's kind of separate from what we generally consider crime fiction. Mm-hmm. That That's definitely... I mean, I love really dark, depressing crime fiction, but there are days where it's just like, I really just want to read about a nice lady who has some cats and jumpers and solve the mystery of the the old baker down the road. Yeah. Fortunately, there's an awful lot of that because we have entire TV channels in the UK just watching, like, (laughs) like, it's like Canadian, Australian, and occasionally non-English language, happy old ladies who solve mysteries kind of shows. Yeah. It's lovely. Alina, you were about to ask a question. Yeah, have you have you seen Murdoch Mysteries? I yes. have watched part of an episode and found it really dull. And I watched well part of it um, because I am that sad person who watched like eight hours of uh, Canadian election coverage on YouTube. <laughs> and there was like a segment where they did a Murdoch Mysteries thing and then Stephen Harper turned up and it was just really sad. Yeah, he's apparently a big fan of the show. I tried not to hold that against the show. Oh, that's that's got to be a really horrible thing for someone to say about something you love, eh? I know. <laughs> so, because I don't know that I would... Like, I would say it's a procedural. Like, the whole gimmick is that it's procedural in the Victorian era. Right. But it really does give me the same feeling as some of the cozy mysteries give me. And I don't know if it's just because of the historical setting. I think there's a lot of... Because um, you do get period dramas like that that are more focused on the darker elements of it. I mean, how many Victorian era crime dramas have you seen that are Ripper related? Right. Like mm-hmm. Ripper Street is definitely a procedural and not a mystery. Yeah? Yeah, there are some shows like that that are desi- designed to be watched while you're having a cup of tea or eating your dinner and then there are other ones that you watch while you're curled on the couch late at night hiding behind the the blankets. Right. I think like- Ripper Street probably goes into that. Like Whitechapel was, which is not period, but was definitely a, you know, curled up with your blankets and maybe a very stiff drink. (laughs) (laughs) How much alcohol do you need to consume while watching this show? If it's more than a beer, it's probably a dark gritty. (laughs) (laughs) It's probably (laughs) grimdark. So we're saying that by definition, a cozy mystery cannot be grimdark. Yeah, because otherwise it's not cozy. <laughs> like, there's mysteries, there's they're... cozy mysteries. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a complicated Venn diagram. I think the thing that sort of differentiates 
the, the cozy mystery, if we're going to call it that, from something more hard-boiled, this cozy mystery tends to, if not downplay the violence, and certainly make it humorous in a way. You know, people tend to die in ridiculous ways or some, something that doesn't happen very often. There's a detached element from it that we know it's not quote-unquote real life. Mm-hmm. Then again, the last thing that did that was Hannibal, so maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> but Hannibal wasn't a cozy mystery? <laughs> I don't know what show you were watching. But if you look at... So I just googled cozy mysteries and it got a link from Goodreads and it's a list of cozy mystery releases coming out in 2015. Mm-hmm. Just let me read some of the titles out to you. And I think it will give you an idea of what we're going with when I mean cozy mystery. Feta attraction, as in the cheese. No. A booktown mystery. Cat yeah. in the stacks. Double fudge brownie murder. Magic and macaroons. A salt and pepper. Uh, no. Some, some like it witchy. No. No ghouls allowed. <laughs> as chimney sweepers come to dust. Blackberry pie murder. A root awakening. Fry another day. For whom the bluebell tolls. Now seriously, I feel like these are titles that Mallory Ortberg has made up for a toast piece. <laughs> I mean, pun game is strong. Oh yeah. So I'm, I'm just looking at all these titles. I, I kind of want to buy like all of these books. <laughs> Actually, with these titles, you notice how much cozy mysteries tend to intersect with food? It's true. Yes. There, these books have... There's a baker who's an amateur sleuth. There's a woman who owns a spice shop who's an amateur sleuth. There's a guy who runs a Greek restaurant who's an amateur sleuth. There is... Well, there's a woman who does some knitting. There's a lot of knitting as well, actually. It's very domestic in that way, which I find very interesting. Because these all of these books, as far as I can see, are, if not all, at least 90% of them... The, the amateur sleuth is a woman and they're mm-hmm. all written by women well almost all that is the, the, I mean we made the point last month in our Crimson Peak episode about how women love horror but there's also a good case to make that you could apply the same for women in crime mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or at least certain facets of it so what is it that women find so wonderful about murder and you want to take a swing at that? <laughs> you know what? I would say not the murder, but perhaps the amateur aspect of the cozy yeah. mystery. If you go back historically to a time where fewer women had jobs outside the house and maybe a time where they, you know, barely any women um, had professions and the amateur sphere is what was open to you then perhaps it's the genre of people, uh, you know, who achieve success as amateurs in a field that does have dominating professionals is, is the part that really appeals to women. I can see that. Yeah. It's that kind of fascinating balance between relatable character and wish fulfillment element. Because, hey, they're, you know, dorky women who like to bake and they're just like you. And also right. they can solve murders. Because in real life, none of us are going to get to, like, creep around crime scenes. I would say, and this may be just kind of, obviously this is narrowed by the scope of what I've read and watched, but I think, do you notice how if the amateur sleuth is a man, it tends to be a PI, like somebody who's still working in that field, 
Whereas mm-hmm. if the amateur sleuth is a woman, she tends to be just like accidentally. She, she's literally an amateur. Right. And part of that could be because the type of women that tend to be the heroes of, you know, the, the Miss Marple's, uh, Jessica Fletcher's of the world, they're, they're, I guess they're approachable. You mm-hmm. could actually, you don't have to suspend your disbelief very far to believe that people would confide in them. Right. So they could find and out information. Whereas if you've got your Nero Wolves or, you know, J.K. Rowling's Cormoran Strike, people wouldn't talk to him if they, if they didn't have some sort of professional standing to ask the questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you have your Franny Fisher with her, her compassioned listening face, which, seriously, that works on people so well. Yeah, and she's like, no, I'm here to help, and I don't have... I have a stake... I, my stake in this is that I want to help you. Mm-hmm. And there's the the aspect of, because you're an amateur and you're not expecting to get paid, then you can afford to help people who don't have money to hire a dude PI who's like, I want a $5,000 retainer, and also expenses. Mm-hmm. Who was a fan of maybe mur- either one of you were a fan of Murder She Wrote growing up, or maybe your parents were when you were. I was never something I really watched. My yeah. my crime thing as a as a child was true crime, mm. <laughs> and it still <laughs> is actually it explains so much. <laughs> yeah. So when I was younger, when CSI started, everyone was really interested in forensic science and that kind of crime story. So pretty much. Every channel started doing late night shows of, you know, true crime stuff. There was one called Murder Detectives that my sister and I were really into. But we weren't allowed to watch it that late at night because we had bedtimes. So my mum would tape it for us and she had four or five episodes of this show that were on one tape. And me and my sister wore that tape out. And it had really creepy, ominous music that was like, dun, 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 dun. And then there was like creepy child voices as well. It was as subtle as a brick. It was brilliant. Uh, that was, I think it also explains a lot about me that the kind of true crime I like to watch is the beyond trashy stuff. Mm-hmm. Like something that admits we are horrible people for getting enjoyment out of the literal deaths of other people. So we might as well make it as ridiculous as possible. There, there's like a, a twisted honesty to that that I admire. Mm hmm. Which was one of the reasons I never got into Serial on NPR, because it was, it, to me, it felt like it was trying too hard to be folksy and, you know, NPR-ish. Mm-hmm. It's like, just admit that this is creepy. Go for it. Like, that was one of the reasons I really liked the Jinx, which is amazing, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, just because it really was very open about the fact that yeah, we're, we're kind of horrible people for exploring this as much as we are. And yes, we realize we are talking to a murderer, but, you know, you're enjoying it. Don't lie. The director even grew a creepy goatee to go with it. There was dedication there. <laughs> My mom was definitely a fan of Murder, She Wrote after we moved to Canada. And so I watched it with her. And I, I, to be honest, I was really into it myself. I still love it. It's like in constant syndication and I'll watch it if it's on TV. Oh, it's a, a daytime TV staple here. Oh, like that and yeah. is murder. Angela Lansbury is a treasure. She is. You gotta love the episodes where the, you know, the English cousin, and she gets to put on her cockney accent and sing, like, vaudeville songs. 
But she spent, what, 12 years putting on a New England accent or an American one? I actually don't even, I've never asked an American how good it was, how good they thought. Well, she spent most of her career in America, like, since the 40s. She's mostly worked in America, so I imagine her accent is pretty spot on. Wait, wait, wait a second, Angela Lansbury is an American? No, she's English. Huh. You learn something new every day. <laughs> yeah, she's ours, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> that was great. The entire episode was worth it just for this. <laughs> is that our episode title? <laughs> We learn something new every day. That's that's your mystery solved. (laughs) Oh, we did want to mention, because we looked it up just for you listeners, but if you remember uh, about a year, well, almost two years ago now, there was talk of NBC resurrecting Murder, She Wrote, which was, I think, actually a CBS production originally, but um, as with, was it Olivia Spencer? I don't want to get her the name wrong. Octavia Spencer. Octavia, I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was Octavia Spencer. Um, I did get it wrong after all. Apologies. So, and I remember a few of us being really excited, and then it kind of just went away, and nobody knows what happened. So I dug up uh, a little article that basically said, yeah, NBC uh, just nixed that idea pretty much as soon as it popped up. So I have a quote here from Angela Lansbury, who said it would have been a mistake to call it Murder, She Wrote, because Murder, She Wrote would always be about Cabot Cove. Even though the show actually didn't always uh, stay there, they uh, relocated to New York for a couple of seasons, and um, they had her travel all around the world. Did you know it even had a spinoff? I think I did know did that. It? Yeah, the um, the Jerry Orbach character. I think his name was Harry. He was an actual Wait, CI. Wait, that's what Law and Order was? <laughs> <laughs> That would have been a that what a twist. <laughs> dun dun. <laughs> I take that back. This is my favorite. <laughs> you guys are on point today. It's because we're nonstop. But um, let's dive into something we can stay on uh, a little longer because I don't think that there's a lot to say about Murder Shirt. I think like I think it exemplifies cozy mystery really well. It is, although I do wonder, why does anyone invite this woman anyplace? Every place she goes, there's a fucking dead body. Like, sorry, Auntie, I'm not, you can't come to my wedding because somebody's going to die and I can't guarantee that it's going to be somebody I don't actually like. I would love that if there was like <laughs> a, a mystery show that actually acknowledged that that was happening. Where it's just like, oh, I would love to come to this, you know, special dinner with you and my my niece and stuff. And it's like, no, we're not letting you come anywhere. There were two times that I remember that Murder, She Wrote called that out. Time one was, so Jessica Fletcher is a widow with no children of her own, but she has an unlimited supply of nieces and nephews. (laughs) And of course, they always get involved with murder somehow, usually being accused of it or their spouses are accused of it. At one point, she's a witness in a criminal case, and in order to discredit her, the um, opposing counsel, as he's into, you know, he's questioning her on the stand, goes like, "Was your niece accused of murder here, and your nephew accused of murder there, and your other nephew accused of murder there? What is with your fa- are you a family of psychopaths?" <laughs> <laughs> yes. Next question. <laughs> and the and the other instance was uh, the show when it moved back to the little town of Cabot Cove. They got a new sheriff. The original had kind of the stock character of the inept sheriff, and then they replaced him. He retired, and they replaced him with like a big city cop who retires to the small town, hoping that it, as a sheriff, and thinks it'll just be kind of a basically a cushy retirement. 
and two episodes in, he goes, what is this? The murder capital of New England? Yes. So I th- it, it was always funny. And considering that the show ran for like 12 years, that's a lot of murder. It really is. Well, that's the running joke about Midsummer Murders, which is kind of the the flagship murder mystery of UK TV. It's like Midsummer is supposed to be a fictional, like, you know, rural area in the south of England. By now, that town should be decimated. (laughs) (laughs) They have so run out of people to kill. And yet the creators of the show claimed that it would be unrealistic to have any people of colour in the show because there weren't that many people of colour in that area. There aren't that much murder in that area either. Yeah, this I remember, I think I actually uh, found an article once which calculated the murder rate of Midsummer County and it was something like, I don't know, a thousand times the national <laughs> It sounds about right. I believe they're actually getting uh, a character of color in the new, I think they're getting a new like pathologist slash what's called coroner, I think, uh, in the new season, which hasn't premiered yet. I still watch that show religiously. I'm sorry. <laughs> I also watch Lewis, which I, in some ways to me, Lewis maybe is because we talked about that, you know, uh, procedural versus cozy mystery. And I do think Midsummer Murders is like, it is more on the procedural side. Lewis is also, Lewis is from the um, Inspector Morse family. Mm -hmm. It's basically a direct sequel, uh, at which point it doesn't, it's not based on any books anymore because Morse, uh, spoiler alert, dies in the last episode of Inspector Morse. I haven't seen that yet. It's very sad. Yeah, I'm sure. It's a pretty sad episode, actually. It really is. Lewis follows the character who, for the longest time, was Morris's sergeant, uh, DS, and now he's a a chief inspector, and um, Billy Piper's husband plays his uh, his Lawrence Fox. So it's back in Oxford, and again, you know, it's police, so you could say it's a procedural, but I don't know if it's the Oxford setting. Um, so the mystery almost always has to do with the university, and they go into kind of high, you know, the, the dangerous and murderous world of high academia. The cutthroat hey, world. Look. Of... <laughs> <laughs> look, when the stakes are so low. These are, this, not, um, this is even less of a TV series and more of a kind of a mini series of, you know, three TV movies per year. They actually said they were, they were done with it. And then they apparently, I don't know if it was so lucrative or something, but they brought it back. They're now in their second post-retirement season. <laughs> the music is gorgeous in that one, by the way. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a second show in that family of shows. And I think, and I haven't seen, but Raiden, I think you said you've saw an episode. I've, which I've, seen, I've seen a couple of episodes. Um, my roommate is big into watching British mysteries, mystery shows when she just needs something. And she watched all of Morse. She doesn't actually like the character of Morse at all. And she watched the the sequel, and then she sort of grudgingly watched Endeavor, which is about um, Morse's early career in Oxford in the 60s. And there's lots of tight smiles and town and gown stuff and the guy who plays the supervisor played one of the bad guys in V for Vendetta, which is how I always recognize him, even though he's been in a million things. I'm like, oh yeah, it's a dude from V, <laughs> which is probably not how he wants to be remembered. Sorry. <laughs> and, you know, it's 90 minute long mystery movies. 
I actually have a, qu a question because what was, um, you know, a lot of these have their hook. For example, the Columbo's hook was that you always knew who the murderer was. Yeah. And it was the point of watching was to figure out if how Columbo was going to make them confess. One more thing. Inspector Morris's, I guess, special thing that set it apart was that unlike the hero moment of practically every other procedural and mystery, Morris was often wrong. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if they kept that in the Endeavor. Has it come up in the Endeavor sequel, uh, prequel? Because they don't necessarily make him always wrong, so it might not have come up in the episodes you've seen. I mean, there's there's the usual kind of trope of the mid-episode. Mid it's totally this guy. No, no, actually no. Um, and you know it's not because it's still the middle of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> But he figures it out in the See, end. He also has... he figures, yeah, he figures it out in the end, um, usually by staring at something and letting his big old brain go to work. The one the one show you actually really wanted to talk about was Hinterland, so do we want to go yeah. into that? Uh yeah. Um so Hinterland, I I totally admit that I started watching the show um because the the main star played one of my favorite characters in Poldark. And he's a Welsh actor named Richard Harrington. And there's a moment in Poldark where I'm just like, oh my God, this guy's totally bangable. <laughs> and it's a Welsh detective show that is, they kind of call it the, the Welsh answer to Wallander. So you have this iconic Welsh thing. And it's shot on location in Wales, which is really quite beautiful, if kind of terrifying looking in the autumn and early winter. <sighs> it sounds about right. Right, Kaylee? I don't know. You've probably never been to Wales. No, Wales and Scotland are quite a bit f apart. But uh, in terms of your, climate, your it's about terms the same. Of, quite a bit of yeah, Your terms of distance are adorable. Anyway. I'm, I'm sorry that I don't have thousands of miles of land ahead of me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that that all of the island of Britain could get lost in Texas, right? Everything can get lost in Texas. It's the whole point of Texas. True. <laughs> <laughs> True. Anyway, so it's it's very much in the grim dark category of mystery, but I would still call it a mystery and not a procedural even though the characters are the police detectives of this small town in Wales. I think they're all small towns in Wales. And it's beautiful. And the fascinating thing, which I haven't been able to experience for myself, is that they shot it, they shot every episode twice. Once in Welsh and once in English with some Welsh mixed in. And the only version that I can get on American Netflix is the English version, and if I want to see the Welsh version, I have to fork out 40 bucks for Dutch DVDs. That'll work on my Blu-ray player. And I'm Yeah, super... the show was recorded um, uh, the originally it was made for S4C, which is the Welsh language channel. Mm -hmm. And then BBC Wales showed the one with English and Welsh. English and so Welsh, but... We... At least, because what... if you're in Britain, you can watch. If you're in Britain and you have satellite TV, you can watch every other region's version of the BBC. 
Mm-hmm. So like, I have BBC Scotland, but if I turn it over to on satellite, I can get BBC London or BBC Northern Ireland. So like if if you wanted to do that, then you could do that, or you could watch on iPlayer, which is like the BBC version of Hulu. Yeah. Yeah, because which... people, it's weird that we didn't really get the full Welsh version on BBC because one of the biggest things that BBC has right now is importing the Scandinavian crime dramas. Right, you know, people are perfectly willing to watch things on subtitles. I don't understand why they wouldn't be willing to watch it in Welsh. Exactly, mm-hmm. and even the the Netflix version, which you know reviews were like, oh, it's like maybe ten percent Welsh. It wasn't on Netflix. There was enough sort of scattered in that was like hello goodbye thank you but like i was kind of hoping to get a sense of what welsh actually sounds like because what it looks like is quite frankly a mess of no vowels (laughs) (laughs) but i don't know what it sounds like and i wanted to see what it sounds like and the fact that they shot each scene twice and richard harrington has said things change depending on the language you're in. My mannerisms in Welsh are completely different than my mannerisms in English. So I use my hands a lot more in Welsh. (laughs) If you watch him in the English version, he's very contained. And I wanted to see how that changed because acting as a process is something that fascinates the fuck out of me. And that's why I watch all of this stuff. So, yes, eventually, by eventually, I mean probably this afternoon, I will fork out 40 bucks for the DVD so I can see it in Welsh. And the Welsh language version just finished airing, I think, a couple of weeks ago. And the English language versions will air, I want to say, January. So they'll hit Netflix who the hell knows when. And the other interesting thing i mean the mysteries are there are four episodes that are 90 minutes long and they're intricate and involve welsh folk tales and stuff like that which is really cool because i don't know anything about that either but harrington's character clearly has a whole backstory which he clearly knows so he's not just sort of winging it but the only thing we've gotten so far as of series one is he has this woman who will not pick up his calls back in London. He was transferred to Wales and he is Welsh, but has not lived there for a while. And he says at some point to someone, what you think I came here voluntarily? And she's like, yes. And he's like, and there's a picture of a kid he stares at a lot And there is clearly something deeply wrong. And he runs. I mean, he runs a lot. So clearly something is wrong there. (laughs) No sane person would go jogging. (laughs) I mean, God, at what cost? And that's all we know about him is that he is a deeply fucked up person, but we don't know why. And it's fascinating because it's clear to me, it's clear to the audience that that when the actor knows the backstory but isn't giving it to you, it still affects everything he does. And he's really good. Mm-hmm. And I want to see him in more things. And as it compares, I've seen one episode of the British Wallander with Kenneth Branagh. And I think Hinterland is better because, among other things, Richard Harrington has never cheated on and broken Emma Thompson's heart. Still angry. <laughs> but um, does Hinterland have 
a golden retriever happy level Tom Hiddleston? No. No, nobody's happy in Wales. <laughs> I am medieval Welsh for a year of university, so I, I shall not comment on that. That sounds like I'm right. Anyway, I want to watch the Swedish version of Wallander because I'm not totally sure that the British version really gets it because it, everybody's mannerisms and language choices at least in the main cast, sounds so British. Even I know they shot on location in Sweden, but it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like Sweden to me. It feels like rural England. Is when you have Kurt Wallander going, "Oh well, you have been in the wars, haven't you?" And it's such an English idiom. So, so wait, is the English version of Wallander still set in Sweden? Yes. Oh, honestly, the accent thing doesn't bother me so much because I would much rather they did that than all try to do really terrible Swedish accents. It's not so much the accents as the idioms. They... Honestly, I think a lot of that is just an assumption that the casual viewer is dumber than they actually are. Yeah, something I... that we can't talk about in our last episode. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know how I feel about that, so. So, yeah, I'm going to give it a couple more episodes. I was going to try and watch them last night, but uh, I just didn't have it in me to watch Scandinavian Grimdark or Scandinoir, as it's been called. I mean, I I get why why Scandinavian Noir is a thing, because when it's dark that long, your mind goes into strange and dark places. Scandinavian Noir is huge in Britain. It has been for the past couple of years since we started getting The Killing. Yeah. I have theories about why. I think Britain don't really know much about Scandinavia, particularly mm-hmm. Sweden. When they think of Sweden, they think of ABBA. Right. And the Swedish chef from the Muppets and other kind of like happy, slightly comical, ridiculous elements. Mm-hmm. So the idea of, oh, actually, it's really dark and grim. And this is a place where it's very dark in the winter and there's metaphors oh, everywhere. Yeah. And then around this time as well, you had the uh, the Stieg Larsson uh, Millennium series, Girl mm-hmm. with Dragon Tattoo and such, which was yep. huge here as well. So mm-hmm. there's just something very appealing about that kind of raw, gritty, very realism driven kind of crime fiction. Mm-hmm. Which I, I like some of it. I'm not entirely wild about it. I, I get the popularity for and we we watched so much of it in the UK. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a channel called BBC Four, which is like the cultural side of the BBC. And they imported a lot of that. They also imported, like, um, the Inspector Montalbano series, which is Italian. Mm -hmm. So it's, like, Sicilian crime without any of the mafia. Which my my grandmother is really obsessed with in a big way. Sicilian crime or the mafia? Well, I I don't know all of her hobbies, but she really (laughs) loves Inspector Montalbano. As she puts it to me, she's like, okay, I really didn't like watching things with subtitles. That pisses me off, but I do like Montalbano. It's awfully good. <laughs> and then she'll go into like a five-minute conversation about how much she fancies the guy in the lead role. She's like, mm-hmm. I know too much about this now. You need to stop. Your grandmother sounds awesome. <laughs> she does. She does. Every time you tell us stories about her, we're like, that's adorable and amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I shan't deny it. 
Right. So please tell your grand that she has fans in us. And she'll be oh, like, she, she, I'll have to explain what a podcast is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's been my obsession. And I would really like for series two to be on Netflix, like right now, please. I love the fact that one of the things that I think is really great about the evolution of television is we have it with things like Netflix and a more international scope is that we get to see stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Cause before, even in the rest of the UK, you wouldn't have got to see Welsh language dramas. Yeah. We certainly wouldn't have got to see anything coming out of Scandinavia. We've also got really cool things coming out of France and the rest of Europe. One of the, I think it's the Glaswegian division of STV, which is the Scottish version of ITV, are now showing like Polish crime dramas because Scotland has a really large Polish population. Huh. And I've I've never heard I haven't seen any of them uh, because we I don't have the Glaswegian version of STV. But I'm really interested in just that entire thing just fascinates me. But the big thing that we have in Scotland, or we did have in Scotland, is a show called Taggart. It ran for 28 years. It was a um, police crime drama about Detective Taggart and his group of very Glaswegian police officers. The show is primarily known for being the show that every Scottish actor has done a guest role on, except David Tennant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's always been really sad about it. Um, and He's genuinely very sad about it. Uh, it's also famous for the, the catchphrase, there's been a murder. Which you have to roll your R's at very strongly. Taggart is one of those weird things that everyone has seen in Scotland, mm-hmm. and I mean pretty much everyone. It, but it's a it's a pretty standard kind of crime show. I think it's primarily known just because it is the most Scottish thing that's ever been on TV. It's full of lots of like miserable alcoholic Glaswegians and in terror blo- blocks. <laughs> I don't know if it was ever really shown outside the UK. I think for a long time you didn't even get to see it in the rest of the UK. Like, it was just a Scottish thing. I know there was a big dispute between ITV and STV over it. Mm -hmm. And then they ended it in 2010, I think. And there was, you know, shock across the land. (laughs) No, seriously, it was like front page news. Yeah. Because we had nothing else about that day, apparently. So, do you think that... The fact that we can all enjoy and understand other countries' murder mysteries says something about the universality of of wanting to take crime and turn it into something manageable. I mean, everybody has to deal with crime and the fact that murder exists... Actually, I'm, I'm going to a deep place right now. So I have a, a kind of, not story, but I have a, a particular work I want to bring up as an example of, of, of what I'm about to say. But I think we enjoy watching like crime shows from other cultures, partly because it's such a unique look into, like there's universal, some, there's the universal aspect, which is, well, we all, most of our cultures have laws, you know, and when they're mm-hmm. broken, we investigate and we find punish. But then there's also all the differences, you know, in uh, conventions and outlooks that uh, these crimes kind of really bring out, and the investigation of these crimes really bring out. Mm -hmm. And there's a play, 
I believe the the play itself is actually English, but I've, what I've seen is um, a Russian movie version of it, and it's called A Purely English Murder. And it's called, it's, it's, it's kind of a closed room mystery because it's a, it's a family group that's been snowed in for Christmas and then one of them's murdered and they have to, you know, so there's a, a limited amount of suspects, that kind of thing. In the end, the title is explained because uh, the one person there who wasn't part of the family, he was a visiting guest, a visiting professor, and he's the one who figures it out. And he calls it a purely English murder because its motives hinged on English laws of succession mm-hmm. um, and politics. So, <clears throat> I mean, kind of the motive of getting power and status is universal, but the actual mechanics of how that would occur really hinge on like local um, local legalities. I think that's kind of the... Um, a little fun example of what I'm saying of where like it gets to dis- really dissect another culture for you. Yeah. But oh, in yeah, terms, that's a really in terms of something like the door is something that we can all understand. And then when you go through it and you see how the different culture copes and deals and what the laws are like, kind of please don't use Hawaii five. Oh, as an example of how American, <laughs> Police procedure works. Please, for the love of God, don't do it. Don't do it, man. (laughs) So, yes. In other words, I agree with you. I think it's definitely like a lot of uh, genre fiction. It's a way to explore very particular ideas about a place or about something as large and scary as crime and death. Mm -hmm. If you look at the... um, Scottish crime writers, so it's people like uh, Ian Rankin, Stuart McBride, Val McDermott, Denise Mina, Louise Welsh, stuff like that. Um, there's a lot of stuff about s- social criticism, the state of the nation kind of things, obviously because the very idea of national identity in Scotland is, has always been a hot button issue, but it has been more so over the past couple of years, and it comes up a lot in these books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's also a really common thing in Scottish fiction in general. I mean, the two most famous pieces of Scottish fiction of the past couple of hundred years are Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and James Hogg's Confessions of a Justified Sinner, mm-hmm. which are about the idea of, you know, the battle of good and evil and salvation and are you doomed to be a bad person from birth and how does that affect you? And if you read something like the Rebus novels by Ian Rankin, which is about this decidedly not very nice man whose job it is is to be the good person in a world full of terrible people it's hard not to ignore the it's hard to ignore the kind of the very obvious themes at play Mm -hmm. i'd like to say very quickly we said we're not gonna rehash anything about sherlock holmes but arthur conan doyle was scottish and sherlock holmes is considered kind of one of the earliest um, of the modern Western ethos of amateur sleuths. So in some ways you could say Scotland is where the, the modern iteration of the genre was born. Good job, Scotland. Thank you, Scotland. Yes! <laughs> we actually have a name for this, by the way. It's called Tartan Noir. <laughs> it's, it is the, no, seriously, it is the term that Ian Rankin came up with to describe his work, and now everyone has kind of adopted it. So there is certainly a lot of that kind of noir themes. There's a lot of the hard-boiled, gritty elements, which, if done well, is really gripping. If done badly, just reads like a parody. But I think there's a bit more of a wink and a nod to it. Like, Rebus can be really funny. Stuart McBride's books, which are kind of like Rebus, but set in Aberdeen instead of Edinburgh, are so delightfully profane. They have some of the great insults of our time in them, which makes them 
incredibly entertaining. But they don't shy away from the sort of grim elements. But I mean, Rebus was the book. Were the books that I was really obsessed with as a teenager, and that shit is dark. People die in horrible ways, and it always sort of wraps up in well, this is a society that we live in. We treat people like crap. Speaking of horrible things happening to people, I had a thing I guess about J.K. Rowling's uh, vent- uh, mur- murder mystery ventures. Because mm-hmm. I do read them. I've read a uh, third one has just come out, I think, less than a month ago at this point. Yes, Barry Hardiman had a fascinating interview with with the Queen on Pop Culture Happy Hour a couple of weeks ago. I'm really glad I listened to it. Um, thank you for linking that to me because it really shed some light on some of the questions and kind of thoughts I had about the show and listening to Rowling talk about it. One of the things she revealed, we'll certainly link to the interviews that she was saying how she had the storyline of how the relationship between the two main characters, which are Cormoran Strike, the detective, and um, Robin Ellicott, his assistant, she had this kind of prog- progression of their story, their life story kind of in, in mind. And apparently the three mysteries, she just kind of shuffled them around as to which which case was going to go into book one, which was going to go into book two, and which was going to go into book three. Um, and just, you know, adapt the actual investigative plots to um, to those cases. We'll do a little bit of background because it, it did have an interesting story about the writing of the books. <clears throat> and in that quote-unquote scandal is a couple of years old now, so people might have forgotten. But she wrote those books under a pseudonym, uh, Robert Galbraith. And the first one came out and nobody knew. I think we actually mentioned it in an episode. And then uh, one of the lawyers at the firm that handles, you know, her contracts affairs, let it le- let it leak. And then everybody's like, oh my God, this is actual J.K. Rowling. So of course the sales skyrocketed. She's donating sales of all the books to, uh, I believe, a veterans, medical veterans affairs, a veterans charity fund. Mm-hmm. Her The persona she constructed to be the author uh, was like purported to be a vet, but like the actual character, the main character detective is a veteran who's now set up as a now retired from the military and set up as a as a private detective. These stories, especially this last one, goes very dark. Now Rowling remember when Casual Vacancy came out and she kind of had to answer not accusations specifically, but people were seemed so shocked, you know, how dark casual vacancy was. And she'd always defend herself by saying, Well, you know, Harry Potter opened with a double murder. Right. It's both true and disingenuous because obviously Harry Potter was pitched uh, in tone towards children. So yeah, horrible things happened. And by the later book, horrible things happened kind of a lot more openly and horribly. Let's face it, we all sobbed our way through the last book. Mm, Speak for yourself. Mm. Fine, I did. Because I'm a heartless monster, Alina. You know that. Teddy Lupin was a baby and it never knew his parents. No, it really was. I I did cry my way for the last one. (laughs) Casual Vacancy, you read that one, like, J.K. Rowling is kind of fascinated with the worst of humanity. Casual Vacancy had some, you know, horrible things happen on the page. Uh, Anybody interested in picking these up, I guess I'll give you straight warnings. Casual Vacancy has a 16-year-old girl raped on the page, Mm -hmm. as well as mentions of other sexual assaults in the past described, and you know, it, it really is kind of a book about horrible people being horrible in many ways. The Cormoran Strike novels, 
this last one really amped... I mean, they are about crime and murder, so obviously, like, violence happened uh, Violence happened in those books. But this last one really just kind of hit hard. It, it was interesting in that NPR interview, Jake Rowland said that the research for this last book is, uh, like, literally kept her up at night. Like, gave her nightmares. She writes about a, ser- a serial... Well, is he a serial killer, I guess, technically in this one? But, you know, she, she researched serial killers for the writing of the book, and specific kind of psychopathies and yeah, shows. So they are they're definitely not cozy. In some ways I would say they get would maybe you'd say they have more in common with a kind of gumshoe is that the is that the right word? Think of the noir period in, in kind of Amer you know, mid twentieth century American mystery like the the pri- the grizzled private detective mm-hmm. kind of thing, right? Yeah, gumshoe's the right word. Yeah, I think it has in, in some ways it has a common with that because Grizzled is certainly a term you can use to describe Corman Strike. This is a person who is, he he's a veteran. He's also, he's suffered a permanent injury. He's missing a part of his leg. Mm-hmm. And he's suffered, uh, at, the, at the opening of the first book, he suffered uh, personal setbacks. You know, there's like a painful breakup of a very long-term relationship that's still kind of in the very painful death throes that you get to observe as a reader. His origins are kind of very tumultuous he's the son of a of a rock star and and a what's the book refers to as a super groupie so he didn't have a stable home so definitely this is kind of a person who's been banged up by life but also kind of not predisposed to like it in the <laughs> to begin with and uh robin comes in as a is this kind of almost breath of fresh air you know your your regular girl off the street and but she really loves it and she's always wanted to be a detective and she comes in as a temp and she's always, and this is like her dream job. So she sticks with it, despite her family kind of all being perturbed by the the new violent, the violent world she's she's kind of become part of. But she she loves it, and she loves learning how to actually be a detective now, and and not just being an assistant, but you know, partner, my, my uh, partner, junior partner in the business. Here's my one of the problems. It didn't really have anything to do with the mystery, but I I wonder if some of our listeners have read these and agree with me. When I read the first book. Uh, you find out in the very first pages that Robin's just gotten engaged. And that made me happy because I wasn't looking forward to it being a love story between the two leads. And the fact that her romantic life was kind of immediately taken care of uh, made me think that, okay, so they'll just be colleagues and really good friends. And I I like that. I wanted that because you don't see that very often. But to me, the, but the last book really kind of is setting really pushing this whole like oh no they're definitely developing some kind of feelings to each other and you know the fiance is kind of an asshole i didn't want it to go there so i'm a little disappointed i'm really disappointed and the npr interview she mentions that book four will pick up where book three stopped so it wasn't really a cliffhanger a little bit of one but she promised there won't be anything preventing the readers from just picking up where they're left off so at least there's that and I do plan to read it uh her writing style reminds me a lot of Agatha Christie's the kind of dry wit and humor so um I do enjoy reading them there there are now that I've thought about this some more there are some historical mysteries that I have read I haven't read a lot recently but there are there are three that I can think of that are set in ancient Rome, which I've have of course tried at least a few books from each one. Well, we'll get to that. Uh, the first one and one of the more well-known ones is by Stephen Saylor and they're called the Roma Sub Rosa series. 
And the main detector, the main character is a detective known as Gordianus the Finder. The series starts at about 92 BC and ends at 46 BC. Um, all sorts of social upheaval, social and political upheaval, which always is fun to set stories in. And they're, I mean, they're good. They're okay. His research is solid, but they really don't, didn't hold my interest past a couple of books. There's also the Falco Mysteries by Lindsay Davis, which is set just after the year of four emperors. So Vespasian is now the emperor, which again, more social upheaval. Yay. Um, and lots of cross-class differences, but there's a, a lightness and a tongue-in-cheekness, which is always always makes mysteries more palatable for me. It's my spoonful of sugar, I guess. And there's also a series called the SPQR series by John Maddox Roberts. I've only read like the first half of the first book um it did not hold my interest at all and there was a random orgy and i was just not there for that (laughs) i know i know i know so there's that there's also a series which starts with um to serve the queen where a lady-in-waiting of elizabeth is employed by cecil to be a spy in elizabeth's court and the first book she has to solve the murder slash death of uh, Sir Robert Dudley's wife, Amy. And they're okay. They're well-written. Don't squint too much at the history, otherwise it'll give you a headache. But they're fun. They're nice. They're light. There's a lot of them. And then we have Miss Fisher. Yeah, which we've talked about multiple times on this show. But we'll do so again, because it's definitely a mystery. Ha! I see what you did there. So once again, and we apologize for the repetition of those who have heard, uh, I've read the books, we've, uh, we've seen the show, which, and we're waiting with bated breath to see it's gonna, if it's going to be renewed for another season. I'm dubious, because Australian shows generally don't go beyond three seasons. But I mean, it could happen. But Essie Day is so pretty. She's so pretty. She looks so different with the like kind of full 1920s makeup and then without. I don't know. There's something very severe about the way the makeup. And then, but then when they show her in the few scenes where, say, it's late at night and, you know, at home, so she's, you know, barefaced, it, she, there's just such a soft beauty to her that really looks completely different than the, than the very, you know, stark red lipstick. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. And she's pretty either way. It's just such a difference. I don't know whether to classify the books Cozy Mystery or not, because the the way they're setting, like the historical setting and the amateur female sleuth, they have all these elements of Cozy Mystery, but then they have kind of very violent crimes and kind of they're honest about them, you know what I mean? Even though, I mean, the crimes are violent, you could say the crimes are violent in, say, Miss Marple because it's murder, but these books are a lot more honest and less cozy about human nature. Mm-hmm. So they have all the trappings of a cozy mystery, and yet they aren't. It's really interesting. Yeah, I think it comes off more of a as, as more of a cozy mystery in a TV show because the TV show is bound a little bit by ratings, and you know it certainly softens. I I feel like the TV show softens it a bit. Mm-hmm. I suppose you could say the other way in which the TV show softens it is. 
even though Franny's still shown, um, you know, having a sexual appetite and sleeping with a lot of, with basically any man who interests her going after them, it's downplayed a lot. Mm-hmm. And they give her a main love interest where the books are definitely in the kind of the adventures of Franny as she fucks her way through Australia in the late 1920s. It's great. You go get it, Franny. <laughs> I see Davis is also actually a little bit older than Franny. Oh, what, about 10 years, I want to say? Yeah, I think that's what you said before. Yeah, Franny in the books is, is 20. I, I've actually seen, I think her some readers and viewers of the show seem to be confused about her age because I believe I saw at least one person who said I've read the books, but, you know, Franny's 18 in the books. And I'm, no, 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 no. She was 18 during the war, right. when the war ended. It's 1928 now. She's, she was born somewhere around 1900. Mm-hmm. You know, like if she was 18 now, she would have been born during the war and she drove ambulances during the war. She ran away from home to, you know, to do that. That's not how that works. She's she's young, but she's not that young. Whereas Essie Davies, I think, is what, in her mid-30s, uh, going up to four, pushing 40? See, Essie Davis, holy shit, was born in 1969 or 1970. Wikipedia is unclear. Unless so she's 40. 45. Oh it's, my god. It's 2015, sweetie. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> really would love another I'd love another season. It's nice to have a setting, yet another setting. That's the thing though. It's it, it's nice to view these from all around the world. Mm-hmm. Although I still criticized um both the books and the in the TV show and that now set in Australia, you don't really see a lot of you know Australian Aboriginals in it. Yeah. Almost not. I think the the TV show episode have had some, you know, like kind of guest starring secondary characters per episode. The books have had almost none. To the point where, and there are a lot. Like this is one of those prolific, you know, what's it, twenty something book series, and I'm about fourteen books into it. And at some point, you know, the volume is such as it becomes a little bit un- uncomfortable. You start thinking, you know, you've had plenty of books to get around to. Maybe some people who aren't white. Well, okay, I'm not going to say maybe some people who aren't white because she's got a Chinese love interest. And, the, you know, a few of the stories haven't featured prominently. Mm-hmm. I know nothing. I, I, if we have Australian listeners, look, I, I really do know nothing about the, the social mores and structures of Australia. So I apologize if I'm overstepping. Yeah, I, I don't know anything. Anything. Um, Kaylee's been so quiet. We need to either get her to watch the show or read the book or something. I have a really long. I, I was told not to buy any more books, though. So. Uh, no, 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 no. You said I'm not going to. To which I was like, mm-hmm. And then you did, and I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like, no, but I'm really I don't not going to buy judgment. any. You're the one. You're the one who put this limitation on yourself. It's hard, okay. <laughs> Um, I know. (laughs) Do you have any idea how much money NetGalley has saved me? I wish it was saving me more money. Same with Edelweiss. (laughs) I do do have um, uh, Sarah McLean's new one to read for review. Uh, Yeah, you should read that. When Smart Pitches did a giveaway, Sarah was like, do you have a blurb? Because I... When we got it, Elise and I made a deal that she would review that one and I would review Teresa Romaine's new book. And that was absolutely the right deal to make. 
but she asked if I had a blurb and I said, oh my God, it was so good. I about peed. And she's like, I can't say that, (laughs) but it's true. It's true. Amazing. I have a couple um, galleys actually romance wise to review. I've got Beverly Jenkins new one Mm -hmm. and I've got Eloisa James's new one too. So, Mm. oh, Is that that's a that's a contentious sound there? No, that's uh, I, I don't think I actually have that one. I'm kind of jealous. And she is also going to be in Boston in February. I will get around to them eventually at some point. Mm-hmm. Slowly, you get around to eventually piles as tall as you are. This is a problem with having the, the one a lot of them on the Kindle as well. It's like you feel like I don't have that many to read. Right, and it's then like, you no, then your Kindle's like, but I'm full. <laughs> Or your iPad's like, your storage is low. And you're like, how is that even possible? Yeah, good times. Oh, anybody here a fan of the Neurowolves, any of the adaptations and books? Back to the classics, so to say. Of the what now? The Neurowolves. I don't know what that is. I don't know what <laughs> okay. that is. I'll close this out with this classic. Um I want to, I, I kind of wanted to mention them because I, I feel like if this is something, uh, a topic the, the listeners are interested in, they'll be like, but you didn't mention that great one. And I'm not mentioning anything by Dashiell Hammond because I haven't read him. I know he's one of the classics. Okay, this genre in books and TV is so big that we can't possibly mention everything. So that's why we didn't. But we invite you to discuss in Twitter and, and comments on the show entry whatever we missed and why we should squeeze it into our busy book and TV schedule since we took out everything by Ryan Murphy on our TV schedule. Pretty much. I don't think there's anything on my TV that wasn't there. Like, there's nothing new on my DVR. No, I added Supergirl. Okay, yes, that one, which is still there for now. For now, show. Hey, we can totally count Ryan Murphy as relevant to the conversation because he's doing American Crime Story. About O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. Starring um, David Schwimmer as Robert Kardashian. I could just keep okay. listening to things about this show. No, please Okay, don't. but see, that's not happening, so... Because Ryan Murphy doesn't exist. I want to live in this world that you live in. It's a lovely world, I invite you. Okay, sorry, Alina. Go on about Nero Wolf. <laughs> they were kind of interesting because they were... Um, it's... The books uh, by Rex Stout, there's so they're set in America in oh I guess it's post World War Two or is it antebellum like that kind of first half of the 20th century, but after World War One. Um, Near Wolf is I want to say Montenegrin and he lives in New York and the the point of view character is actually his assistant Archie Goodwin an an American. They're definitely more of the gumshoe style of mystery, but they've got a lot of the gimmick. You know, Nero Wolf loves food, loves it. He has a five-star chef on his employee. Uh, they live in the brownstone. Hardcore fans will know how many steps lead up to the doors of the brownstone. The point is, he never goes outside. He is humongous. Archie Goodwin periodically describes him as weighing as much as a small elephant and two tons and three tons. He makes fun of his weight a lot. Wolf only admits, you know, few people to his circle, his Archie being one of them. Archie's the one who does all the legwork, and then Wolf thinks, and then he knows who killed who. I actually fell into them 
because there was what I thought was a really good TV adaptation. It starred Timothy Hutton as Archie, and it's, it's Maury Chaikin. Yeah, it's Maury Chaikin um, as New York Wolf. And it was done, the TV show was almost kind of done as, it looked a little bit like a stage play. One of the things they did is they used almost always the same kind of small cast of actors to cast the, um, the episodic characters with. Not necessarily each one was in each episode, but most of them had guest starred more than one as completely different people. They did it on purpose. They kind of wanted it to have that artificial um, stage look. Mm-hmm. But it was a really good adaptation. All, you know, all the actors were top-notch, and uh, it was pretty fun. I'm not entirely sure if it's on Netflix, but if it's in one of the stream, if, if you like the genre and you find it in one of the streaming services, it's called A Near Wolf Mystery. The the books themselves all have uh, very like there there's a it's a humongous series I think of thirty or f- maybe as much as fifty books. Just like with Agatha Christie, you know her books spanned uh, what four decades more, but. Both of her main detectives in Poirot and Miss Marple were already older when the first book came out. And when she's still writing them 40 years later, it's like, you know, they should be like 150 by now. <laughs> and yet somehow they're just kind of always nebulously old. And it, I think it feels kind of the same with Nero Wolf. Like he was already, you know, at least I'd say 50. Kind of. There's, his age is never specified, but he's obviously already... You know, a mature man who's gone through a lot and been th- was already adult during, say, events of 20 years ago. So you think he's about 50, and the series ran for decades, and yet they kind of never really age. You that in that suspe- it's almost like comic book time when a series runs that long, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, like how how long ago has Captain America been around from his suspension? Oh, you know. It wasn't in the 60s, and then it was kind of in the 70s. And then you just, just like whatever amount of years ago, work with it. Don't think too much about it. That's what these, that's what these series do. They work on these kind of suspended time. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of them. And for some reason, they're expensive in ebook. It drives me nuts because I really would love to read more. And, I, you know, as, as I feel like um, I can afford kind of some more expensive, I buy the next Nero Wolf one. Probably never going to reach the end at this rate, though. But they're like $14 for an ebook. Ugh. I know, right? No. Yeah. Look, reading's an expensive hobby. We know that. It's true. So, with all of our experience, do you think we could totally solve a murder? No. <laughs> Wait, excuse you. I have a master's in criminal justice. I took an investigations class in undergrad. Why aren't you oh, the heroine of a cozy mystery? <laughs> Because uh, I'm not cozy, because I'm heartless. I would be the heroine of uh, Grimdark. <laughs> Excuse you. I, I would totally read a I would totally read a cozy mystery about uh, a lawyer slash romance reader no, who goes no, no, out no. and solves crimes. To, all the mysteries are set in her historical reenactment. <gasps> there, there is. Um, we have to write this. Okay. True fact. <laughs> true fact. True fact. There is a murder mystery set at the Pensac Wars. It's called Murder at the War. It is an actual thing. True That's fact. Excellent. We'll find we'll find you a link. I think the ebook is expensive though, or at least it was. Like if there can be a murder if there can be a cozy mystery series about a woman who runs a snow globe shop, yes, that's a thing. We can totally do this. <laughs> we have this giant list of books to write. <laughs> <laughs> snow way out. If we do this, we're gonna need to be on top of that pun game. 
I know, right? Yes. A thinly failed version of me. (laughs) 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 Is she still going to have red hair, though? Yeah, because then you can have a book called Scarlet Fever. Fair enough. Thank you. Oh, now I'm 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 desperately trying to come up with some witty historical reenactment murder pun. (laughs) We could be here for some time. We could be here for some time, so we should let the people go. (laughs) But people should totally tweet us suggestions. Yes. Yes, please do. (laughs) Please do. I still say that I'm a grimdark heroine. Anyway. Oh, God. You could be the grimdark heroine desperately trapped in a cozy mystery. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're just surrounded by all of these wacky historical reenactment people, and you're trying to. I'm like, but I have secret pain, people. I have secret pain. You can tell that I have secret pain because I run. Run while in full historical garb. I jog from my feelings. <laughs> well, we hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you all next month. Have a good night, everybody. Bye. 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 You have been listening to Anglophies, a made-of-fail production.